Welcome to the Be Real podcast. I am your host, Diana Gasparoni. I am a visionary psychotherapist, CEO, and founder of Be Well Psychotherapy and Be Her programs. Along with my amazing co-hosts, Anisha Salisbury and Divya Robin, each week we will talk about the journey of mental health wellness. We will talk about why your mental health is just as important as your physical health and the connection that being mentally well has on all areas of your life. We will be interviewing psychotherapists from various disciplines and schools of thought, doctors from both Eastern and Western disciplines, authors, change makers, thought leaders, and more. Our mission is to bring you information that is both thought-provoking and encourages you to look closer at your mental and emotional well-being. We will give you tips and insights to taking the next steps, or if you have already gotten in the door, to go deeper. Each week, we are going to have real conversations, helping you work through your mental wellness questions, reminding you that you are not alone. Mental health is my passion. I practice what I preach. I know that the struggle is real. It is our mission to touch as many souls as we can with this content, leading you to a place of mental clarity and well-being. So for the next hour, let's work together and look underneath the surface and get real. Hi there. Hey, it's me, Diana, and it's Be Real. It's that time, and I'm here with Anisha, Hey, hey, we are here today. Feeling <laughs> yeah. good. And pandemic, trying yeah. to find joy. <laughs> yeah, Anisha's bringing me some joy today. You may find that you hit a wall during this pandemic, maybe one or two. Maybe you hit a wall, maybe you bounce yourself off the wall, maybe you stand right back up. Today was my wall day, but I pulled it back together. I'm really going to keep it real. I just get a lot of my mind. Today, we have a friend of Anisha's, and it was so, yes. so amazing. So Anisha's friend, Brian, who is a thought leader and so interesting and thoughtful. And uh, we just jumped right in and started talking about how this is whole thing is disproportionately affecting um, African American and Latino communities in a way that is overwhelming and sad. And Anisha, something Anisha and I have been talking about on the regular. So I want to say thank you to Diana, because I said this week, Diana, I'm going to need you to do the questions to ask our guests, because I think that um, my relationship with this topic is, is I have such a close relationship to it. And there's a lot of pain and, and yeah. grief. And, and, and I feel a lot of loss when when I talk about it, because I have lost friends as I look through my social media, I see a lot of loss. And so I wanted to bring this topic to be real because I thought it was important because it's something that impacts me on a daily basis now. And, and for so God since, sake, it is fucking real. I mean, let's be yeah. real. Yeah, it is real. It's not even like I'm not even gonna hold back and like pretend I'm not gonna curse today. Like this shit is real and it is real out there. So we yeah. thought that it was it was an important topic to bring up. Um, because we're in it right now, right? And we realized that there is communities that um, are not just being physically impacted, but also mentally impacted, right? And so we always want to talk about people's well-beings and the importance of your mental health. And so how could we not talk about this topic if the mental health of a, um, a, a community is suffering right now, maybe more than others? Yes. So uh, we thought it was important to bring this to you our uh, listener. So um, yeah, I'm excited to have Brian on. So I guess I should tell you guys a little bit about him, right? Yes. He's not just my friend. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> he is my friend, but he's not just my friend, right? So No, he's super, um, super impressive. It's true. And he's, yeah, yeah. And his bio is, whew. So Brian Sells is a thought leader. Um, he's also a lifetime learner who has been working in youth development, higher education, and human services for roughly 30 years. He's a principal owner of a training and technical assistance organization, Transformative Training and Technical Assistance, LLC, that provides culturally competent training and technical assistance solutions for organizations working in the youth development, youth mentoring, K-12 education, and college and university space. He is an avid reader and researcher of literature focused on the African-American experience. So I think that it is going to be a treat for you guys to listen to us talk today. And uh, I can't wait. Yeah, you're going to learn a lot. Let's get right into it. During this time of COVID-19, 
We want to remind you to be patient and breathe. If you notice that you are having trouble sleeping or concentrating, that is natural under these circumstances. We all need a minute to adjust. However, if you are feeling overwhelmed, extremely anxious, or the isolation is too much, now may be the time to connect with a therapist. If you are in the New York area, please reach out to BeWellPsychotherapy.com and if outside the area, please connect to a therapist near you. Again, if you're in the New York area, please contact BeWellPsychotherapy.com. Now, back to our show. Hi there, it's Diana Gasparoni, and welcome back to Be Real. So today, uh, Anisha and I have been talking about what's been, obviously we've been talking about what's been going on with COVID-19 and how it's affecting both of us. And we for sure see the difference in how it is affecting both of our communities. So uh, Anisha really rallied today and um, really pushed for this conversation. And I'm so happy that we can talk about it in a really in-depth, thoughtful and emotionally connected way because um, we can see just in our own relationship with each other that it is disproportionately affecting Anisha opposed to the way that it is affecting me. And so we want to highlight the effect that this is having on African American and Latino communities and the difference, the differences and what we're seeing and what we're feeling. And Anisha, good morning. Good morning, Diana. I have to say, I don't know why, but I am feeling amazing today, even though it is raining <laughs> in New York City. It's kind of cold, but um, I'm excited, I think, because I have my good friend on today. Yes. Right? So I think that that is what's bringing me all of this joy. So we have as our guest today, his name is Brian Sales. Um, actually, Brian and I went to the same college. We just went in different years. <laughs> so Brian's a little older than me. He came up to visit and we met when I probably was like a sophomore in college. And we've known each other and been friends for the last 20 years now. So um, I thought that Brian would be a good addition today. Because what I love about Brian is that he is a lifetime learner. He studies and researches Black culture. So um, I know that he is up to date on everything that is going on around COVID-19 and especially how it is disproportionately impacting African-Americans. It would be great to have him come on today um, and talk with us. And also, I thought it would be great to have a male voice around this as well. I don't know if you know, Brian, but like we love women around here. <laughs> we talk to a lot of women. I love women. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> oh, good. I thought it would be nice to um, kind of switch it up and to have um, another lens in which to look at this. So, um, yeah, we are excited to have you on. So welcome, Brian. And I'm excited to meet you, Brian. So this is very exciting for me, too. So welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, uh, Diana and Anisha and Don. When Anisha uh, mentioned to me that she was doing a podcast, I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty interesting. She and I, as she mentioned, have been friends for 20 plus years. We kind of reconnected kind of dropped off the map there for a while when I was raising my son. So, I, you know, I kind of see this particular issue as an issue that clearly is affecting uh, African-American and Latino workers that are living in larger urban communities in a way that perhaps it's not affecting other communities as much. And she and I have had many discussions about this particular issue and the virus. And as we sort of try to consider some of the uh, challenges associated with that, we think there's some similarities and some differences as it relates to how individuals are being impacted. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much for allowing me to say hello and talk a little bit about this topic. Awesome. So before we get started, can you just give us a little history about you and like what you do and how you, we know you, we know you have a son, so we know you're a dad yeah. <laughs> and we know, and we know you have good taste in friends because you're friends with Anisha. So if you could just give us a little bit about what you do professionally and some of the research and things that you've been uh, involved in. Appreciate it again. Um, I'm originally from Syracuse, New York. So I'm, a, I'm an upstate New Yorker and have been living in um, Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. for the past 20 years. So I'm married for 20 plus years. Uh, my wife is an 
is a uh, K through 12 um, educator. I am a father of a 19 year old son who is a freshman in college. Um, I have several brothers and and some sisters as well uh, through my biological father, and just sort of a person that's been interested in this work. So for the past 20, almost 30, well, I guess 30 years or so, I've been working in higher education, but mostly I've been working in human services. And in particular, in the last 17 years, I've been working in youth mentoring. So I've done a lot of work, both in terms of running programs with young people here in the Washington, D.C. Uh, area, but also the last 10 years, I've been working both for a national nonprofit and a consulting company that does training and technical assistance to help provide both best practices and some evidence-based practices to youth development organizations literally around the country. So I've had the good fortune uh, in my previous jobs to travel. And I guess I was telling Anisha, I've been to 47 of the 50 states. And a lot of that has to do with the work that I've been doing. So I see myself as sort of an educator, uh, sort of stumbled into the work. At one time, I fancied myself into going back to school and uh, getting pursuing my doctorate and teaching African-American history. But as I sort of struggled over the years in terms of what it is I wanted to study and wanted to work in, uh, I find myself leaning more towards social work. So Anisha was kind of cheering me on the other yeah. day thinking about doing social work. And it's interesting because for years I kind of resisted that title and a lot of my friends would always kind of laugh at me. They're like, that's what you're doing, social work. So I can talk all day about my experiences here, but um, that just wouldn't be fear. So I'm going <laughs> to stop the right there. So. Well, um. I hope that Anisha gets you to make that flip because we always need really smart, emotionally connected men in our field. Help her work on you a little bit. <laughs> um, work in progress. So. Okay, good, 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 good. As I was talking about at the very opening of the show, Anisha and I have been talking daily um, uh, during this crisis and in our own personal lives, we've seen the difference in how, I mean, I am being affected, but the people that are close, the people that are closest to me are all healthy. And Anisha has not had that same experience. I really want to hear what you guys are seeing and talk to you a little bit more about Brian, what you're seeing and what, how you're feeling the disconnect or, or disproportionate effects or disconnect yeah. or whatever word we're going to use today to really talk about it. No, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, clearly the uh, the number of cases, COVID-19 cases, and, um, have risen dramatically and disproportionately in African-American and Latino communities. And I think the framing of the conversation in many respects has been somewhat framed in a way that maybe sort of deficit lens in that here are the things that these people are not necessarily doing, these underlying health conditions. And I can speak about my own personal experiences about that in a moment. But I also think that part of the conversation that's sort of changed is the notion around these essential workers. Who are the essential workers, right? Who are the individuals that are engaging and interacting with the public on a day-to-day -day basis? And when mm -hmm. we think about essential workers, I think initially we thought about essential workers are those people who might work in the fire departments or the police department and in hospitals. But what we're seeing based on the data is that disproportionately black and brown folks are working in those particular sectors, whether they be grocery workers, whether they be medical staff, whether they be persons that drive transport, whether it's subways or buses in particular, these folks are being disproportionately represented. So I don't know if it's just a matter of uh, black and Latino folks are having disproportionate underlying health condition. Well, clearly that may play a role. But if you're literally out there hanging out with the public every day, you're more likely to be exposed to it. And one of the right. more um, discouraging and, and depressing incidents that occurred in Detroit that kind of broke my heart in many ways was an African-American man, probably in his 40s, heavyset guy like me, crying to the public that someone, a passenger, had come onto the bus and started coughing. And he was just beside himself. He didn't have the appropriate PPE personal protective equipment, um, which in many cases is probably the reason why I think people are being affected. And then within days, he, he does this social media plea about people taking it seriously. But within within days, maybe in a week, he died. Oof. And it sort of struck me. And it just like you're seeing and hearing these stories all over the country. And it's it, it's it's alarming. Um, and Anisha, I do want to hear from you, but I think that one of the things that has really been standing out for me is this language around essential worker. In a different lens, in when we think about essential, we think about it and there we put such a positive spin on it, but we're putting people's lives at risk every day. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've taken language to make it so like almost look pretty. And then um, we are, in fact, in putting people's lives at risk. And it just, I mean, I, I've already cried this morning, but 
I might cry again. Um, so for me, living in New York City, um, yeah, you know, our, our mode of transportation is generally the subway or the bus. And I do realize that um, over, I think, 30 percent of the workers are um, African-American. I actually have friends who drive trains. I actually have friends who drive buses. And I do have a girlfriend who drives a bus. And she is terrified, like just terrified. When I look at who the essential workers are, they look like me. You know, I'm in the grocery store the other day and I said, thank you to the guy that was putting the milk away. I said, thank you to the guy who was cutting my turkey. Um, You know, and he said, no one ever says thank you. And I said, well, I need to say thank you because because of you, I'm able to eat because of you. The country is able to continue to move. And I think that that's what we're definitely seeing. Right. Like our department of sanitation. I mostly see people of color, Um, you know, the bus drivers, again, people of color, the grocery store. So all of these people. And I think the unsung heroes that we don't talk about is um, the people who work in the hospital who are not doctors and nurses. Like what about the people who are the maintenance people who are cleaning up every day, right? right? Like those people are putting themselves in harm's way on a, on a daily basis. And we're thanking them, but in what ways we're asking them to work these double shifts. We're asking them to continue to expose themselves on, on a, on a daily basis. So it's been really hard for me because on my social media feed, I'm seeing rest in peace daily. I mean, like daily. Yesterday was like three people, new people that I saw that passed away. So um, it's definitely been hitting hard in, in a different way. And it and it saddens me, it saddens me daily. Um, oh, yeah, it is. Um, I, I know myself that I have been thanking every single person that I see. And I think also like every time I get a delivery or I see somebody in my doorway, that is bringing from Amazon or the male person always is a person of color when I go to the grocery store. And like, I'm so grateful that this is, that I'm still able to get all the things that I need. And at the same time, so conflicted that people have to go to work so that I can get what I need. It's just, how can we, how can we really thank people or um, what's, I mean, I want to be, I want to be like, what can we do about it? But like, it's such a big, such a big question. I don't even know where to go. (laughs) Like I want, right. Like when we're, we're, what do you think? Like I can thank people, but there, there's more to the conversation. So Brian, I I think, and I appreciate what you're sharing it because, you know, I'm in a sort of privileged place, right? So, you know, I grew up in a working class, predominantly white ethnic community, but live right on the edges of uh, lower income African American communities in Syracuse, New York. But now, you know, my son's experience and my experience is completely different in the respect that I can work from home, right? So okay. that's a big deal. And people, when we think about what social distancing is, you know, how can you socially distance yourself when you're in these essential jobs as you, as you talked about? So I think advocacy for people who are working at the front lines, all of us should be contacting. You know, it's 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 shameful, you know, downright criminal that Jeff Bezos, a man who's a multi-billionaire, is firing people at Amazon because they are complaining that they don't have appropriate personal protective equipment. One of my friends that I know from high school, you know, uh, he shared with me because he, he works at Amazon and a person has gotten sick. So it's just criminal. I think part of it is how do we prioritize health in this society? How do we define what being healthy, healthy is, is spiritually, physically, materially, and from a policy perspective, you know, what does that look like when we think about that? So this is an opportunity in this COVID-19 crisis to begin to redefine and reshape policies for human beings of all backgrounds to really reconsider that. And as I mentioned to um, Anisha prior to us talking here today, it almost feels as though Mother Nature has a hand in sort of slowing us down as a human society all over. We can now see uh, that there's less pollution that we found. Um, NASA uh, has uh, certain instruments to sort of measure um, the lack of pollution or the uh, less pollution. So all over from LA to New York to down here in the DC area and folks in India can see the Himalayas for the first time. So at some level, you know, we're going through sort of a spiritual and human crisis. And I think whether we want to blame it on capitalism or other economic systems, communism, what have you, We've got to really begin to think about humanity in a different way. Um, that was beautiful. And one of the things, my biggest takeaway is that we are able to see, like we can see the Himalayas, we can see 
so many things on the earth, but we can also see people in a new way, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are being forced to see people and the experiences that all people are having in a new way. And yes, it's a privilege to be able to work from home and what, and I'm grateful that I can work from home for sure. But what, how we, how we then move forward and how we treat people and the things like the protective gear, like everybody should have, that should have just shown up at everybody's doorstep. Absolutely. Masks and gloves should have just automatically shown up at everybody's doorstep. And that, I mean, I could go on for days about that. Anisha, what's on your mind? Well, when you talk about like masks to show up at everyone's doorstep, I want to give a a special shout out to to my sister, (laughs) Janine Salisbury. She has a, um, a nonprofit organization, Share for Life, and she is working with the governor to give out 500,000 masks to people in NYCHA, which is the New York City Housing Authority. These are mostly um, underprivileged people who live in um, NYCHA, and so they are putting together where they're going to give everyone masks. They're also going to give them um, hand sanitizer, disinfectant, and things like that, because she realized that there was a need, because now in New York, we are mandated to wear masks. It's hard to find them too, right? Let's be very clear about that. When you order masks, you have to wait at least like three weeks to a month to get them. But, you know, we have to find a way to look at that part of society that has no voice and, and who, who need us in a different way and figure out how we can help them. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think about, for me, I live in an apartment building. So it's harder to social distance when you live in environments where social distancing can be difficult, right? Like if I live in an apartment building, I'm going to see my neighbors and um, have contact with them in a different way than maybe you, Brian, who live in the suburbs in a, in a house, right? Like, so it is very different when you walk outside your doorsteps, what that feels like for you. In New York, social distancing can feel very difficult and very isolating. Um, I don't have a porch that I can sit on and like maybe say hi to my neighbor that's next to me on their porch. And so what happens when I just want to go outside and see people? Am I putting my life in danger if I want to, you know, want two of my friends to come out too and talk with me? Mm-hmm. So I've never wanted a porch. Really hard. <laughs> I've never more wanted a porch want more than I want one now. Uh, Woo, do I want a porch? Right. <laughs> In a front yard. I'll even mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I want it all. I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> Nisha wanted a response from you and I was stuck on a porch. No, and I, and I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, where you are, right? Which is maybe more suburban. How are you feeling when you're walking out? And what does it feel like for you when you go to the grocery store and need to social distance? Well, let me tell you, you know, I'm stressed out. So, you know, I'll just fully disclose, you know, I've had some my own health issues. Um, I've, you know, I've had to battle uh, cancer. Uh, five years ago, I found out I had chronic myeloid leukemia. Unfortunately, they found it early enough. And, you know, I have hypertension, like many African-Americans. I'm a former athlete, so I put on some pounds over today. So when I keep seeing pictures and seeing stories and um, stuff I posted on Facebook, and I see people that look like me that are dying, it terrifies the hell out of me, to be honest with you. So, mm-hmm. like, I literally, because I'm in a situation where I live, I only go out absolutely to just get groceries, maybe get the mail, and I might take a ride in my car and take a drive for half an hour if the weather's nice. But Brian's not leaving the car. I'm not walking around <laughs> shaking hands with people. When people yeah. come up to me and say something to me in the store, you know, I get this aggressive, you know, real masculinist attitude where I, I don't want to be bothered. You know, and we got so much, so many mixed signals, right, from the federal government. And some we can blame it on the president's lack of attentiveness to it. But others is just the reality of folks just not knowing how to protect ourselves, right? right. So although the warning signs were there, and I'm never, uh, you know, I don't want to get political or anything like that. There were so many mixed messages around masks, how people should socially distance themselves. You know, I found out from a good friend of mine from high school, who's friends with a young man who played college basketball at St. John's, and they had a huge party for him. It made the New York Times. Two people in this sort of gathering, and about five weeks ago when the guidelines were different, Two of these gentlemen who were college basketball stars, they ended up dying. Mm. You know, and they're African American in their late forties and they ended up dying because again, people have to be responsible and take, you know, but part of it was that they did the social distancing, but at the time I think the number was like less than a hundred people or less, you know, um, that whole idea, that whole notion around um how many people could actually congregate together and, and still be relatively healthy. They felt that they had followed the guidelines, but 
unfortunately, two of their friends ended up dying and others ended up, you know, uh, contracting the COVID virus. So it's, it's just really concerning because I think you all are in a state in a city where it's happening disproportionately, right? You live on top of each other. We talk about the density rates and we see that in places in large cities. I mean, Milwaukee, a city that's uh, heavily segregated, African Americans were dying left and right in Chicago. In the D.C. era, because we finally learned some things, it's the numbers are starting to raise, uh, to rise, and um, it's 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 a challenge. So, you know, I think mental health crises are happening with folks, and we just don't know how to call it that, right? We don't really define it, in particular in mental health in the African American community. You know, we usually pray about it. You know, if we go to church, you know, that doesn't mean other communities don't do that, but we don't often see some of the stressors as a mental health issue. Well, I want a therapist supposed to jump in. <laughs> I was just going to say, I really, uh, I know that this is something that, again, that Anisha and I talk about regularly, and I want Anisha to respond. I do think it's so important that we can recognize that um, us social, excuse me, isolating ourselves can cause some issues around our mental health. For me, as a therapist, in the beginning when this started, I had some clients kind of fall off because they just felt like, you know, they couldn't come see me in my office, which also gives them the privacy, right? Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of us are apartment living. So apartment living, we might have a one bedroom, we might have a studio, we might share that with a partner or children. They just didn't find the space to kind of have the sessions. What I'm noticing now that we're in like week four or five, that a lot of my clients are now coming back because they're realizing that, hey, right, like my sleeping is off. I can't focus on that as productive. Like, all of these challenges that they're having, that they're more willing to say, I have to figure out a way to talk about it. And so I think it's so important that we see how this could really impact our mental health, because for a lot of us, it makes us feel very hopeless and very helpless, especially if you are seeing friends of friends dying, you know, people's um, parents, grandparents, and you yourself are an essential worker. So I do think it's so important that, um, we pay more attention to those feelings of helplessness and feelings of hopelessness that are are coming to the forefront right now. Absolutely. I'm trying not to get overwhelmed with my own feelings this morning, which uh, I've had, a have had a lot of, and, and I'm the conversation. I'm so sad about all of it. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we've defined self-care, and I know Anisha uses this a lot in her work with, her caseload identifying therapy as self-care and that this is something that we can do and that you do for yourself to take care of yourself to try to destigmatize that therapy is for crazy i don't know that's not the word i want to use but but you don't know what like right right like you don't have it doesn't mean that you have a a severe mental illness or that you are schizophrenic or that um although those are reasons why you go to therapy but like you go to therapy to take care of yourself and that that is an excellent form of self-care but when we're talking about self-care because i know in taking care of yourself, right? Like right now, self-care looks very different, right? Because self-care is wearing a mask. Self-care is putting on gloves. Self-care is social distancing. What are other ways we can bring self-care in a new way, right? So when I think about it, and when I think about the way that self-care is marketed to me as a white woman, it's like I'm inundated with how to take care of myself, like inundated. Like I get more information on how to either meditate, take a bath, do this, do that, whatever it is, I am inundated with take time and pamper yourself. And how can we look at self-care in a new way in communities of color? Because I know that it is disproportionate, like the, in the, even just in the marketing, I know that it's disproportionate, like how I'm told to take care of myself as opposed to how Anisha is told to take care of herself. Yeah, that's a great so, That's I mean, if I can kind of unpack at least some of it. Yeah. You know, so just to sort of think about what does mental health mean for African-Americans in general? I mean, for the most part, most of us would see and view mental health counseling and so forth as something that these people who are crazy have a mental illness. And Mm -hmm. that's obviously both incorrect, but it's also sort of a stigma. You know, we don't want to sit down there and lay on the couch. And we have lots of language around that and so forth. And for men, you know, black men, Latino men and so forth, and I'm generalizing here, that's not something that you are comfortable doing because we all have our own issues, regardless of race and class, where we have to deal with our own sort of... um, uh, issues with our parents and with our peers and so forth. But as I told Anisha some years ago, you know, I had had 
trying to deal with some of my own um, issues of abandonment. And I didn't know what, how to even call it out. So I had two friends, two women, one Latino, one African-American said, well, why don't you get counsel? And, <laughs> you know, you're like, what? I'm, I, and I just I kind of for a while just sort of struggled with it. And then I ended up reconnecting with a young man who was working with me um, in the foster care mentoring program that I ran. And ironically, he was a trained therapist and he probably was like the final kick in the butt to go ahead and do it and start to begin to sort of unpack some of the issues that I had had. So like for me to talk about emotions and the fact that I had this pain that a lot of black men do when you're dealing with issues of abandonment and so forth was very difficult at first to come out. So I sought out a therapist and spent probably a year and probably still need to go back. But there's still a part of me that's just like, I don't want to spend time talking to this person. I don't want to do that. That's for other people. And then I think framing it that way makes it very difficult. So I think part of it is just the ongoing um, stigma associated with doing that and not feeling like something, the change or the transformation is immediate enough for you to make that change. So, you know, that's kind of been my experiences with my friends. And, you know, some of the, some of the st- strategies we've been using, interestingly enough, we've been doing Zoom phone calls with my friends that are graduates of Hobart College and William Smith uh, Nisha's uh, folks have joined the last couple of weeks. So that's like a Friday night call. So this evening we've done this. I think this is the second or, or the third or fourth week. And then my friends from graduate school on Saturdays have been getting together. So the use of technology, even though folks are kind of like stressed out, it's this kind of social connection that can't be completely replaced, but it's happening. The other thing that we're seeing happening, particularly in the African community, are these sort of DJs um, and musical icons having these these battles, as they call them. <laughs> we're all about the dj battles around here yeah it's, it's amazing so like folks are getting on instagram and you have like a hundred thousand people that are just chiming in so i think that technology in a really strange way is sort of bringing folks together in a different way because you know 12 13 years ago if you told me about facebook you know what the hell is this facebook it's for college kids and now people are using that and instagram that are communicating and connecting with people in a way that they really haven't in the past. So, um, When I think about self-care, yeah, I think that we have to look at self-care differently and what it really means. And I think that at times for me as a black woman, I think that there is this narrative that I'm always supposed to be strong. Mm. Maybe taking care of myself is not even a thing because I have to be strong, right. especially if I was a, a mom. I would have to be strong for, for my kids and for my siblings, for my parents, everyone else. And it's right. like, I got to be the martyr or something. And I can't take care of myself because it's so important for me to be strong. So I, I think that that's what stops some of the people from coming to therapy um, sometimes because it's about if I'm strong, then I'm able to take all right. of this on and I don't need any help. Right. And, and I have to tell my clients, it's OK to ask for assistance. Right. right. Like it's OK. And yes, none of my clients are lying on my couch. I have a couch, guys, and nobody lays on it, which mm-hmm. is just fine. <laughs> but I noticed that also we talked about the spiritual side of things. Right. And a lot of African-Americans, you know, we, we go to church, maybe we go to our pastors or, or we pray. And I think that I'm noticing my clients. It's so important that they have feedback. And that's part of what's important for them. Therapy is that they have feedback. So I talk through things with them so we can sit down and and we'll talk about, well, how will you communicate this feeling to this person? Let's role play it. You know, let's talk it through. And they're realizing that these are the things that I need to help take care of me. This is my self-care. Not to say that you shouldn't go get your nails done and your hair done, but are you really then taking care of yourself? Are you feeling better? Are you figuring out what your thoughts are, what your feelings are around things? And I think that when this is over, we're going to be grieving. Now, and we're probably grieving right now. Right now and, right. and, and Diana and I have talked about, you know, when people think about grief, they really think about losing a loved one. But we're grieving the loss of normalcy. We're grieving right. the loss of, you know, our livelihood. Right. If all of these people are claiming um, unemployment, like people are losing their livelihood. So right. we have to say that it's OK to grieve things other than people. And you can grieve the trip that didn't happen. And you grieve the graduations that won't happen, wanting people to know, to give themselves permission. Yeah, that's spot on. Cause it's like, I don't know if, if men, and I'm generalizing here again in particular, know how to call it out for what it is like this grieving process. Like 
So for me, work has like almost come to a standstill. So like I lost out on a few training opportunities and I'm like, damn, you know, this is tough. You know, and how am I going to make it through here? And obviously I'm not the only person that's going through that. But for me to even sort of frame it as a loss uh, in an emotional sense, I feel like, OK, I got to step it up and figure out how to deal with it. So it's like you were talking about that strong black woman as a man, as a black man and so forth. You want to feel like you are providing and you continually to to uh, uh, to work on this and that you can overcome adversity. I mean, we talk about the history of it. You know, these are things that, you know, unfortunately, in many respects, we'd be like, you know, you talk to the previous generation. Oh, that's white people's problems. Right. That's stuff that white folks have to deal with. You're black. You're a black man. You're a black woman. You have to be strong. You have to be twice as good. You have to continue to work through it. And those sort of stressors, those racial stressors add to people's hypertension, add to, you know, obesity, poor nutritional habits and so forth. And uh, one of my mentor intellectual friends, Dr. Howard Stinson out of um, University of Pennsylvania, helped me to really understand that. And um, he's the older brother of Brian Stevenson from the Just Mercy movie in the book. And he talks about dealing with racial literacy, right? Racial stressors and how this can impact and just sort of affect people's their uh, life expectancy. And as when he sort of struck that, said these things in a, in a group training uh, a few years ago, it sort of stuck with me. You know, how do you manage and monitor this for your own mental health? You know, how do you, how do you uh, manifest in a positive, upbeat way every day in your life to really sort of engage in a joyful, happy way? Um, to really make sense of this, of, the, of, of your day-to-day realities, you know, so it's, it's really compelling for many of us to begin to kind of have this conversation in a way to really think about loss and mourning. And it's sort of like, um, coming to a head, right? We have all these sort of interconnected, um, variables affecting us all at the same time. And you feel like your world on some levels is coming to an end. And then other people are just sort of like, okay, you can stay in the house for a month or two months and you'll be okay. It's, it can be overwhelming. I, I truly appreciate your transparency, Brian. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I want to go back to, and Nisha, I would like you to respond a little bit too about just the, there is that everyday tension of having to go out in the world as a person of color and most, which I can only empathize with. And it, of course, it's not something that I experience, but I experience it through my relationship with you, Anisha, and know, know from hearing and being with you and just noticing things and the things that we've talked about and what that and how just really talking about it, because I think one of the things that we hear, and I know that we had this discussion is that with the underlying health conditions, and that we're not actually looking at the mental health part of it, when we talk about it, it's almost as a culture, we, we, we use blaming language like like we're not taking care like you're not taking care of yourself or something when that's not actually the case when the case is is that we we aren't as a culture we aren't being we aren't using the right language is what i'm trying to say i mean i'm thinking about some of the work that i've done with uh some women for long periods of time uh women of color and the and in predominantly white businesses and what that's like for them and um talking about just that, that, that it is the stress or the, I work with a woman who has a migraine condition and I'm like, you don't, you're angry <laughs> and you should be. And we have to find a way to put it into words. What having watched that happen and help her to go through the fine language to put, it's been an honor for me, but like how, um, I don't even have a question. I'm just like rambling on and on. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, Whoa. but, um, if you, Anisha could speak more to that. I, it, for me, it goes back to slavery, right? So as African-Americans as slaves, we were asked to, um, do and not feel right. So right. no one cared about how we felt for so long. I think we stopped caring about how we felt because we felt like it wasn't important. We just had to do. So every right. day, like as, as if I don't have the privilege to be depressed, right? Because I don't have the privilege to maybe stay in bed all day and, and just kind of like maybe be sad. Because mm-hmm. if I do that, the rest of my life is going to fall apart. It's like a domino effect, right? Because if I can't get out of the bed, that means I can't get up, go to work. If I can't go to work, I can't pay the bills, right? Like I can't do all the things in my life that needs to be done. So I just rather not feel. So I think that that I find that a lot with people. I just I, I won't feel, 
because it's just easier that way, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like it might be easier in a moment. Right. In the moment. So we really, really need to address the intergenerational trauma, right? That there is that long, lang- that long, long, long history of not having the language or not being allowed to even experience the feeling. And that if we as, especially as mental health professionals, really look at that inter- intergenerational trauma and that we are like each generation and we're perpetuating it, right? Because we're not bringing language. We're not using that. Like we see it in media. We see it. We don't allow for the full experience of all of the feelings for everybody. I mean, I know that I, I never thought twice about going to therapy. I had like, I was able to like it. All my friends were in therapy when I by the time I was 27 years old. So I was like, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be more expressive. And then it wasn't until years later that I realized that there were like, I was like, oh, right. But, and then when I got into a group and then I, that particular group over time became more diverse, but it started out as everybody looked like me. And it took a long time for people to start coming in. And I think like when I go to my analytic institute and what they're trying, and it wasn't until like the past two years that we were trying to put, right, paying attention to the diversity and things like that. And now that um, how can we come together collectively to start using a similar language so that we understand each other better? Yeah, that's a really interesting yeah, I think, you know, just to touch on a little bit of what Anisha said and kind of answer some of your questions or thoughts about it is that, you know, when we talk about therapy and just engaging in uh, with the medical community, uh, whether it's mental health or physicians and so forth, we have to talk about cultural mistrust, right? Yep. Uh, so with African-Americans and Latinos, I mean, we know the stories of Tuskegee. We know the stories of sterilization of Latina and African-American women and so forth throughout both this country's history and some of the other countries' histories as well. I mean, the uh, famed gynecologist, uh, I think his name is Sims, um, and the experimentation that occurred on enslaved Black women um, often became part of the uh, those gynecologic, gynecological uh, experiments and so forth helped to inform that whole practice. So there's still within the um, culture of black people, a level of mistrust. And while it's both uh, race, it's also class and education based. And I think that part of the reason why uh, African-Americans are so distrustful of mental health is that one, we don't see ourselves as having sort of the same kinds of issues. Now I may be changing on some level, but I also believe that what's important too is that black people oftentimes and Latinos as well, look to religion as a sort of palliative for them, as opposed to sitting down and talking to somebody one-on-one. Now, I think that's changing, but I don't think it's something that folks will do in general. I think that Black people are still, in particular Black men, I don't know if any other other Black men that I know in my own personal experience, if I bring it up, and I'll share, I've even shared it with some of my friends um, that I went to counseling. They're like, well, that's good, but (laughs) that's good you know that's Mm -hmm. so this the whole notion of mental health i think that this particular crisis may in fact redefine it because how do we how do we as people in general if we're not comfortable talking out our issues with people we we eat too much and what else do we do we drink we use substances and so forth Mm -hmm. and and Anisha, I don't know if you saw some of those calls and some of those calls were sort of social, you know, folks got their alcohol and cigars in the background, <laughs> you know, because maybe I eat too much or, you know, but I'm just simply saying that these sort of self-medicating ways, we don't see this and define this as ways in which these are coping mechanisms, correct? So yeah. these coping mechanisms can lead to poor practices um, and behavioral uh, practices that are not healthy for us physically and mentally. So I think it's a it's an ongoing sort of conversation and dialogue that perhaps, you know, the generation coming behind me will be more open to. But I think it's going to take a particular type of messaging for black and brown men to be comfortable with one to one counseling or even group counseling. So, well, I would have to say in my practice, I don't have many men. So let's be very clear. And I love, love, love when I get a male client. Whenever I get a male client, I get so excited because I want it to be okay to be vulnerable in that way. And and to talk about, right, those feelings and those thoughts 
that we're having and not have to be strong all the time either and redefine what it means to be a man and to be a black man. So um, when they do come to therapy, I cannot be happier. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's very important that and I hate to say it this way, but in the last couple of years or maybe, yeah, last couple of years, mental health has been trending, especially in brown communities. Right. I think that at therapy for black girls, which is um, she does a podcast, but she also um, just talks more about the importance of mental health and communities of color. And I think people are really taking to it. And I think that there are more black women and black men going into social work, going into psychology. And I think that's one thing that I've heard from my clients is that they'll they'll meet with me and they, they'll say, hey, I've been looking for you, Anisha. Maybe not particularly for me, but for a black female therapist, because they feel like I don't want to have to explain culture to someone. And so if I come in here, there's just things about the black experience that you're just going to understand. We don't have to have grown up in the same space, the same place, but there are some commonalities that we're just going to have. And I don't have to spend most of my time explaining what it means to be black. And also they feel like when they talk to me about things, I'll believe them because maybe I have experienced it. Like I have a lot of black women who, um, you know, have certain positions where they are directors and they are high up in their companies. And sometimes they feel like they're not hurt and they're not understood. And and so they are dismissed in many ways. And so as another black woman, they feel like I can understand that because two to one, I've probably had the same experience in some way. So I will say that um, just personally, Diana, I appreciate you because I've been working with you for many years, but it's always been very important that you have a group of women that are diverse, right? Because there have been times that I've been the only black person in the room, you know, maybe at work. And sometimes we'll talk about things and Diana will understand in that moment that I might be uncomfortable and we'll have a conversation about it. And I really appreciate that. Because it happens to me so often where I am the only one. And I don't think that people really understand what that feels like. It feels so lonely. It also feels like there's all eyes on you. And, you know, should I say this? Shouldn't I say that? It's it's a lot of questioning of yourself. So for her to make sure that we have a space where there are, um, you know, just a a diverse group of women. I've always appreciated that. And, 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 um, I thank you for that because it it makes me feel so comfortable in a way that you cannot even understand. I mean, I, I wasn't going to (laughs) cry. Um, it is all, it, your comfort is very important to me as you know, and also, um, it's important to me. I don't, I've, I've definitely worked in places where it's been all white and it, that does I, I don't want those that I want the same voice in my head all the time either. I want to, I'm interested in passionate about uh, people coming together and understanding each other. And the only way to do that is to be in the room together and to be open and honest. It's the only way to do it. And so I purposefully make sure that we have that in our group because I, um, I can't imagine a a world where everybody is the same. It, it breaks my heart (laughs) to think that people would even want that. Thank you, Anisha. Um, I was thinking one more. I wanted to go back to the Zoom calls a little bit because I wanted to know, Brian, if you were seeing it is an interesting way to stay connected, right? Like with this, we aren't fortunate to be in this situation, but we are fortunate to have the technology. And um, as you're bringing communities to your, your community together, are people being more vulnerable or is there more intimacy over this weird technology that you wouldn't get in a, at another time? Yeah, it's a great question. When I saw the question, I was like, you know, I was talking to Anisha a little bit about it um, this morning prior to the call. And I said to her, I said, you know, the one thing that I'm seeing with all of my male friends, and we're talking about guys in their 50s, having these open expressions of saying, I love you, man. I love you. And you didn't hear that growing up at right. all. You know, you were weak, you were a punk, you were soft. And a lot of us are former athletes, so that type of language is not necessarily um, conducive to the occupation, if you will. Um, <laughs> sure. Type of language because you were seen as being soft or, you know, unfortunately, some homophobia and so forth, homophobic right. comments and so forth. So that form of masculinity, which becomes toxic, 
No, I think there have to be forms of like male aggression that have to be channeled, right? So sports oftentimes is reflective of that particular experience that helps to, uh, I don't say curb, but to channel those particular behaviors, which are both biological and sociological to help people, particular men deal with that. But I've been struck by the fact that guys have been open and saying, man, this is really messing me up. Again, we're not going to use the same language that say women do or even black women. We're going to talk about it in a very male, particularly heterosexual men, maybe uh, LGBT, you know, gay black men may have a little bit more uh, comfortability around the language. But the openness to just say, look, this shit scares the hell out of me. Ooh, did I curse? I'm it's OK. Fine. That's yeah. all right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, <laughs> We're like encouraging the cursing. Yeah. <laughs> Get <Right>. it out. <laughs> keep right. it real. Well, let's keep it real. There you go. That's <laughs> All right. So just to hear guys who I thought are some of the most macho guys in the world say, hey, man, you know, this thing is really messing me up. I don't know how it's going to impact me. You know, we've got family members that have the COVID. And a lot of the folks who went to college with us are from the New York City area. So people mm-hmm. know people who have died. Yeah. And to hear them talk about that. And to tear up a little bit um, amongst some of them has been very real and very, very honest. Again, a lot of times we mask it with the do jokes and humor. I think Langston Hughes talked about, you know, crying. Uh, I'm crying. I mean, I laugh so much because it keeps me from crying. Right. So some of that masking is, is, is occurring, you know, whether it be laughing, whether it be drinking, whether it be just this kind of solidarity. It is happening. And so, some, so my call on Fridays is the guys mostly because we kind of put it together. But then my call on Saturday with the grad friends are mostly women who doctorates, you know, as well accomplished women. And, you know, they get right into the emotional stuff as well as the analytical. <laughs> it's a completely <laughs> conversation. And it's so different. Jump right in. Yeah, it's a different conversation. And some of these folks have worked in lots of different uh, arenas. So I don't know what this will hold for the future, but I do feel that we have to begin to market mental health in a very positive way to particularly black men. Uh, I know that, you know, you all see women because I just don't think we see it the same way. We don't experience that. Again, it's something that those people do, not us, you know, whether it be racial or gender or class based. It's just not something that we do. We rather go pray it away. The fellas be all you break up with your girlfriend. Come on, man, let's go out and get something to drink, you know, or let's go get something to eat. So those become the uh, the attitudes that one would take on as a way to kind of mask the pain that we're dealing with. So we're socialized that way. And right. we don't oftentimes have the way to reflect and think about this in terms of mental health. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know if I could bring this up and have this conversation with all of them because they want to get I don't want to get all sappy, man. I want to, oh, I want to, and we're sending know. Anisha to your Zoom call on Friday night. You, we got it. <laughs> I'm, I'm she's she's going to just poke herself in on Friday night with the guys, and she'll just she'll give a little, you know, infomercial. Well, I while you were talking, I was thinking the one thing about if about this tech, technology piece and bringing people together. It's um, when you were talking about uh, being an athlete and you're in the same room together, right? So like if you using that language in the same room, like we have to worry, we worry about our impulses or what that having the separation is allowing men in particular to really open. That is just so amazing, right? Like like finding new language around their feelings and expressing it probably for years, they've been wanting to say to you, like your best friend that you play, I'm going to say football. Was I was basketball. I, basketball? I was a basketball player. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I basketball well, I cannot. I, I see you that's sitting. Fine. I can't. I. No, I was thinking. All right. It's okay. It's okay. No, that's fine. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like to be able to say that face to face is, I mean, takes a, a lot. And like, but even in this moment, from separate places, like it still takes a lot. But now, now there's this openness and this. Like you can even feel closer to them, even though you can't get near them. Yeah, I had a friend from high school whose sister reached out to me on social media, and I haven't seen him in years. He was always a little bit more emotional and so forth. But his his last text to me when we were texting back and forth, hey, I love you, man. He would say that. Man, he was one of the only guys that would really say that. And Mm -hmm. we chuckled when we were like teenagers. He said, come on, man. Now, he's a, he was a big guy. I mean, I'm big now. I'm probably bigger than he is now. But for him to say <laughs> and break down the barriers and to say that even back then, and I just, you know, when I see him, 
if I get a chance to see him when this whole thing is over, I'm going to share that with him. But he's he's always been like that, and it just kind of struck me. But I'm, again, I'm all of my male friends. I've been more open and honest. Some of the toughest. I mean, you're talking about <laughs> some guys. That, <laughs> you know, their ear, their whole physical appearance and affect was not to be emotional. It was just not something that you did or was cool. So I love you. <laughs> um, we got a little, we got a little chat going on. Okay. So um, we, well, I mean, this has been amazing and I, I could stay here all day, but we, we, we have, we are, we keep it real and we keep it to an hour, but we don't end any of our shows without Anisha's questions. So uh, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to listen to Be Real, but at the end of each episode, Anisha asks our guests two questions, no. um, and I never know what they are. Okay. I'm a little nervous now. Don't yeah, be nervous, Brian. Don't be nervous. One of them. One. Okay, go ahead. Diana. One of the, One of them will have. You'll there'll be some emotional content. You'll have to dig deep, and the other one you won't have to dig as deep. <laughs> won't we'll oh, be as emotionally we'll, charged. We'll, we'll go with the dig deep first. How have you been brave today? I don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the, welcome to the end of Be Real, where we get we become therapists again. <laughs> yeah, I sort of struggle. I, I don't even know. You'd have to define being brave. I mean. I don't think oh. I've been brave. I don't think there's anything I've done that was. I think when I think of brave, I think of being doing something extraordinary. So oh. morning was just to get up, put my pants on, and eat breakfast. So I haven't <laughs> done anything that I would even well. consider to be brave. So I'm um, sorry. I would I, disagree um, <laughs> respectfully. Okay. Um, I think that you coming on and um. Being open and honest and vulnerable and transparent was so brave. And I thank you for that, for being here as, as a friend, as a, as a black man, for just being very open and honest about the topic. So I think that you were very brave today. So thank you. I agree. I appreciate it. See, that's a perfect <laughs> example to me. Is of as, as a man, I wouldn't see that as like bravery. I'm like, Duh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you didn't save a life today. <laughs> you didn't stop traffic. Yeah. You didn't put on your superhero cape. Yeah, and right. I think that's sure. it, right? Being brave relates to being a hero, right? You know, so that's the kind of heroism that just immediately that I think, again, all men don't think the same way, but bravery always, it's, it's about like self-sacrifice as opposed to like being brave yourself about talking about yourself. I would never even think about it that way. So I need some help here. So help me. <laughs> You know. But you never know. You're giving voice right. to this topic in a different way to a different population of people. So you mm-hmm. never know who's listening to this, who might listen to you and say, wow, like maybe I'll go to therapy now. Maybe I'll tell my friend that I care about them or, or I love them. Mm-hmm. Right. So you never know when you are modeling behaviors for others. And I think that you modeled a very special behavior today for some people. No, I appreciate that, you know, and I think it's hard. It's harder for men to share that with other men. I think it's easier for me to talk to women about this, you know. Well, that's I, why a lot of men go see female therapists. I will say that. Yeah, real. Okay, so now we're gonna keep it fun. Like we're gonna, we're gonna lighten it up a little bit now, okay, Ryan? <laughs> no worries. <laughs> what is your favorite '90s jam? Oh my God! Come on. <laughs> You know the 90s. Stop it. What is your favorite 90s jam? <laughs> I was about to say, don't believe the hype, but I, I have some, you know, I love music, but I can't even think of like what would be my favorite 90s song. Throw out some artist names so I can think about it. Who did I like? So it's got to be the difference between hip hop and R&B. Just throw one of them. Any of them. I was going to say Public Enemy Fight the Power, but I can't remember if that was 1990 or 89. <laughs> 80s. <laughs> But I will say to everyone that Brian, when he gets on the dance floor, he dances. I've been to parties with Brian <laughs> and this in the last year. Now you, now you call it up on the dance floor. So, yes. <laughs> well, hopefully somebody's going to go to D-Nice's party tomorrow night in their living room and get their dance on because I know I am. 
All right. I am for sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was so special. And um, and you should get anything else. I I, I really all- want to say thank you to you, yeah. Brian. Um, as a friend first and foremost, but also um as a as a man, right? Like coming on here and having a different perspective and a different lens in which to look at all of this. Um, we appreciate that. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank well, you for sharing yourself welcome. with us today. You're very welcome. And I appreciate the opportunity to share all about this experience. And you all are doing fantastic work. And uh, again, continue to keep educating uh, the community and helping people to kind of dispel some of the myths around there and continue to support um, the larger community. So blessings to you both and you as well, Don. Stay safe and keep washing your hands. Yes. Stay yes. safe. Keep washing your hands, your hands, guys. Right. We will see you next week. Okay. Thank you. Bye. thank you for listening to the be real podcast stay connected to us and subscribe to be real wherever you listen to podcasts and if you are feeling it how about a five-star review if our conversation sparked a question join us in the be real podcast facebook group we hope that you have walked away with some new insights, curiosities, and ideas to better help you on your journey to mental wellness and overall well-being. I encourage you to go to BeWellPsychotherapy.com and check out our services and programs. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com. Okay, we have to stop here, but I'll see you next week.